Well, I also want to welcome you uh, here, those uh, attending our 9.30 service, as well as those uh, in the cafe service uh, upstairs. Uh, if we have not met, my name is David. Uh, I serve as a senior pastor here, and if you are a first-time guest, I want to especially welcome you today. Hope you are blessed uh, by your time in worship today. We are beginning a brand new series today uh, called Rooted. We are looking specifically at where we are rooted as the First United Methodist Church of Mansfield, Texas. We'll be doing that uh, by looking at the work of two Anglican priests, brothers, John and Charles Wesley, uh, the work that they did that awakened a movement uh, that led to uh, the birth of Methodism. Uh, if you got the email that I send out every Friday just preparing for the weekend, uh, one of the things that I noted is that we are doing this series uh, intentionally at an important time uh, within the life of the United Methodist Church, uh, the denomination that we are a part of. Uh, there is a called session of what we call General Conference. General Conference is the main legislative body of the United Methodist Church, a, a worldwide denomination. And so at the end of this month, uh, delegates from churches all around the world uh, will gather in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, for a called session of that conference. They usually meet every four years. They've been called together to to discuss a, a specific issue, and they'll be dealing specifically with issues uh, related to human sexuality. Now, because I know that that perhaps creates some questions for you, uh, over the course of this month, I'm going to have four town hall gatherings. Um, uh, all will take place in the chapel next Sunday, the 10th, and the following Sunday at 3 p.m., and then Wednesday, February 13th at 11 a.m., right after we finish pastor's Bible study, and then 6.30 p.m. Uh, in the chapel. In these gatherings is when we're going to talk about general conference, and I want to make sure that you are well informed uh, about that, and you have the opportunity to ask any question that you would like to ask. And I'm going to do my very best to answer as many questions as I can with a response other than I don't know, okay? That's going to be my goal, um, but here's what I want you to hear very specifically and very carefully. Uh, as you hear what General Conference is going to be uh, meeting to, to discuss and, and to work through, uh, don't make assumptions about what that does or does not mean, what will or will not happen. Speculation has, uh, is, is, uh, does us no good at this point. Breathe deeply, Jesus is Lord, and everything's going to be okay. And any questions that you have, any concerns that you have, this is the place to bring those. Uh, this is where we're going to discuss that. That's, uh, that's not what we're going to be doing over the course of this series. This is about the denomination uh, that was formed in 1968. We're going to spend most of our time in the 1700s, okay, uh, as we look at five aspects of the movement that gave rise to Methodism. But again, I want you to know about those opportunities uh, and, and invite you to come if you would like to, to hear more about that. Uh, but we're looking at the roots uh, of, our, of our heritage. And since I know that some of you do not share the same level of affection for history that I do, uh, I want to illustrate for you up front why I think a series like this is so important and why history is so important to us. Uh, you may have heard me speak before about my papa. That was my grandfather on my dad's side of the family. Uh, he uh, was and continues to be a, a hero for me. His life is for me the blueprint of what it looks like to build a life centered in faith in Christ. 
my son uh, has his name. And one of the prayers that I pray is that there will come a day in Jack's life, my son's life, that he will know what, what it means to me that he shares the name Jack Alexander with, with my papa. Uh, but the, the latter years of his life, really the last decade of his life, w- w- were difficult years for him. It was difficult years for his family as he dealt with the effects of Alzheimer's. Uh, as we uh, observed uh, the, the, the memories, the moments in his life that had really defined him, how those were stolen for him, from him. And if you've had anyone in your life who you've watched go through that type of, uh, of disease or anything related to that, you, you know how damaging and, and devastating that can be because as those moments are lost, we recognize that it's our story that really shapes our identity. It's our story that really helps us know what, uh, who we are and what is distinctive about our life and our character. Uh, another way of thinking about it is this, that, that history is what shapes our identity. And it's our sense of identity, it's the strength of uh, our security and our identity that, that defines our future trajectory. In other words, if you don't know who you are, you don't know where to go. If you lose a sense of who you are and what your life is all about, you have no idea where to go or, and no idea what next step you need to take. And history is what shapes that identity, and that happens in our individual lives, but it also happens in our life together. And so it's important that we don't find ourselves deficient in our history because we will lose our sense of identity and, and that affects our understanding of what our future trajectory would need to be. And so that's why we're looking at this uh, in this particular series. John Wesley, who I'll tell you more about in just a moment, he actually shared this concern near the end of his life. He wrote, I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. But I am afraid lest they, o- they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both to the doctrine, the spirit, and discipline from which they first set out. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to open that to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible with you, you can find Ephesians 5 on page 1819 in the blue Bibles that we have available for you in our worship spaces. If you're using one of the second grade Bibles that we passed out last week, it's on page 1165. Uh, so those are uh, two ways to find uh, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read to you verse 8 through verse 14. And as you find that and prepare to hear this, uh, let me just give you this word of caution, or I'll tell you up front uh, what uh, uh, really grabbing hold of this first message should mean for you. If you catch this first aspect of the movement that, that was Methodism, if you really understand it, then the question you should ask yourself at the end of this is, what did I get myself into? That, that, that will mean that you've really understood what we're talking about in this first message. If you find yourself in the end going, uh-oh, what in the world did I sign up for? That's, that's the goal for today. And with that in mind, hear these words from Paul. He writes, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. 
For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I'm going to put that last portion of verse 14 on the screen. I want to invite you to read this with me. We're going to read it several times uh, this morning. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We're going to read it several times just so, you know, you stay awake as we move through uh, the message. In fact, we're going to try that again because that was a little bit weak. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. John Wesley was the 15th of 19 children born to Samuel and Susanna Wesley. Susanna was the youngest member of her own family. She was child number 25. Uh, Charles was number 18 of 19, uh, which may raise the question, what are your expectations of number 15? Like, how far does the bar go down? Uh, We obviously know that the infant mortality rate was very different in the early 1700s. Of the 19 children uh, that Susanna gave birth to, nine of them would die in their infancy. Uh, Samuel was an Anglican priest. John and Charles would eventually be ordained as Anglican priests as well. Uh, They were certainly influenced by their father, but both John and Charles wrote uh, at great length speaking about how it was really their mother, Susanna, who had the most uh, prominent influence on the development of their faith. That's why Susanna is often referred to as the mother of Methodism. Uh, John, uh, in speaking about uh, the historical significance of John Wesley's life, uh, one has said, John preached more sermons, traveled more miles, published more books, wrote more letters, built more churches, waged more controversies, and influenced more lives than any other man in English history. During his ministry, John Wesley rode over 250,000 miles on horseback, a distance equal to 10 circuits around the globe. He preached over 40,000 sermons. John was the preacher. Charles was the poet. Charles wrote over 6,500 hymns. If you don't know, Dylan and Larissa just released their second single, which means they only have 6,498 to go. Kenneth Kinghorn writes about Wesley, artists have produced more portraits and engravings of John Wesley than any other person in English history with the exception of Queen Victoria. And broadly speaking, this is what John Wesley and Charles Wesley's life were were all about. John Wesley dedicated his life to bring renewal to the church in which he was baptized and in which his faith in Christ was formed. His passion was restoring the vitality of a church that he believed had forgotten its story, had lost its identity, and had no sense of future trajectory. And so again, let's read Ephesians 5.14. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
There are two moments in the life of John Wesley that I want to tell you about, two of the moments that defined his life and who he was and what his future would eventually become. The first happened in October of 1735 as Wesley prepared to travel across the Atlantic in preparation uh, to become uh, a parish priest in Savannah, Georgia. And while he was crossing the Atlantic, the ship that he was on found itself in the middle of a raging storm. A storm that was so bad that the mast of the ship was broken. Now, I don't know anything about sailing across the Atlantic, but that sounds bad to me. It was a really, really bad storm. And as you can imagine, most of the passengers on board were filled with panic and fear, worried that they were soon to be tossed overboard and, and, and find themselves drowning in, in, the, uh, in the disturbed waters that surrounded them. Except for one group of people, a group known as the Moravians, they were a group of Christians also working for renewal in the church in Germany. While everyone else was panicking, they were gathered together praying. They were praying and they were singing, and one of the Moravians who knew John Wesley observed Wesley participating in the panic of the other passengers, and he found himself wondering, why is that Anglican clergyman so afraid in the middle of this storm. And so as Wesley recorded in his diary, the, uh, the Moravian came over to him and he asked them this question, do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? And Wesley, perhaps a bit taken aback, said, I know and trust that Jesus is Savior of the world. And the Moravian said, that wasn't the question that I asked you. Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? And Wesley said, yes, yes I do. But it was in that later reflection that Wesley said, what I realized was the answer was really no. That I I had an intellectual understanding, but, but no, I didn't really know. Jesus in that particular way. He he wrote in his journal, I fear that those were vain words. He arrived in America uh, and everything went terrible. I mean, his ministry in, in Savannah was a complete and total disaster. It was awful. He returned to England. It is also historically accurate to say he escaped to England. That's how bad it went. Uh, He he wrote about his time in America, Uh, I I went to America to convert the Indians, but but oh, who shall convert me? The the assurance that he had seen in the Moravians in the midst of that storm, the, the absence of that in his own life caused a great disturbance in his soul. The failure that he had experienced in in Georgia had led him to return to his homeland a broken man. Considering that everything that he had ever done in his life and his ministry, it was all a failure. He had no idea what the rest of his life would be. And that sense of despair is reflected in what he shares about an invitation he received in, uh, in 1738 to, to attend the gathering on Aldersgate Street. He, he wrote about that, that in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans about a quarter before nine while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ 
I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that He had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So again, we read Ephesians 5.14, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In the weeks to come, we'll talk a lot more about Wesley's life, his ministry, uh, what we understand today as Wesleyan theology. Theology is just a big church word for how we think about God and God's relationship with God's creation. I'm just going to share one aspect of that with you today, what is commonly referred to as the four alls of Wesleyan theology. Wesley believed that all need to be saved, all can be saved, all may know they are saved, and all can be saved to the uttermost. All need to be saved. Wesley believed that without Christ, our lives are hopeless. He affirmed what we see the apostles proclaiming in Acts chapter 4 when they say salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved in the name of Jesus. All need Christ. None of us can do that saving work by ourselves. All can be saved, Wesley believed. In other words, there was no limit to, to, to who was, was invited to receive the free gift of salvation made available in Christ. He completely rejected the idea that there were some who were elected or chosen to be a part of this new kingdom, and there were some who were chosen to not be included. All can be saved. All can experience the saving love of God made available through the work of Christ. All may know they are saved. In other words, that as someone comes into relationship with God, they are justified with the Father. They are brought back into proper relationship, proper alignment with the Father through the work of the Son. And when that happens, they are given the gift of the Spirit that comes alive in them, comes to reside in them. And it is that Spirit, the Spirit that warmed a broken man's heart it's that same spirit that gives us the sense of assurance that Christ has indeed saved us and rescued us from the sin that we were once in. And all can be saved to the uttermost. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be saved to the uttermost? Is that like a you know, special part of heaven? Is there a is there a gated community there that says, welcome to uttermost on the outside? What, what does it mean to be saved to the uttermost? Well, this is how Wesley understood salvation. He understood salvation to be being set free by the power of the Spirit from the grip that sin has on your life. A gift that is received when we are justified in our relationship with Father, but also a gift that is received as over the course of our life we are sanctified, purified, cleansed to the extent that we are set free fully from the grip and bondage that sin has on our lives. And that, that is something that is not only a gift 
that is received in the life to come, but it is a gift that is possible to be received in the life that is the here and the now. In other words, Wesley believed that the Christian life was a calling to a holy life. He wrote, I became convinced more than ever of the absolute impossibility of being half a Christian. Holiness, growing in holiness. This is, this is how Wesley understood the aim of faith. And holiness for Wesley, he understood it in two different ways. Holiness of heart, meaning the inward disposition of your life, the orientation of your heart, away from the world, away from yourself, an orientation, a disposition towards God. That all of your love uh, being oriented towards God, this is the holiness of heart. But holiness of heart, in Wesley's understanding, was always interconnected with holiness of life. In other words, it's not only the inward disposition of the soul, it's the outward expression of our faith. Uh, He wrote, there is no holiness but social holiness. For the gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. Faith working by love is the length and breadth and depth and height of Christian perfection. Perfection was a word that Wesley used not in the way that we use it, not in the sense of one becoming flawless, but in the sense that as the Spirit works in our life, we might overcome the self-preoccupation that continually blinds us to our neighbor's plight as we deepen in holiness of heart and holiness of life. In other words, Wesley believed in loving God and loving others. And while this isn't the language that he would have used in the 18th century, I think he would also affirm one of the core values that we share, that everyone has a next step, that this is an, this is an ongoing journey of growing towards a life that is holy and pleasing to God. And over the course of 250,000 miles on horseback, that had to hurt, and over 40,000 sermons, this was the invitation that Wesley continually offered, an invitation into a life of holiness, holiness of heart, and holiness of life. So again, let's read this. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Holiness of heart and holiness of life, Christian perfection, sanctification, all of these words were words that Wesley used interchangeably. He talked about the marriage of those in the Christian life as being an altogether Christian a phrase that he used in one of his most famous sermons titled, The Almost Christian. So as we close, I invite you to hear a portion of that sermon. Wesley said, the supreme question therefore still remains, has God's love been poured into your heart? Can you say to him, my God and my all, do you desire nothing but him? Are you happy in God? Is He your glory, your delight, your crown, your rejoicing? Do you love your neighbor as yourself and as Christ loved you? 
Do you love even your enemies and the enemies of God? Can you say that you believe Christ loves you and gave himself for you? Do you believe that the Lamb of God has taken away your sins and cast them as a stone into the depth of the sea? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ now stands in our midst. If anyone should die without faith in and love for him, it would have been better for that person if he had not been born. Awake, therefore, you that sleep and call upon your God. Call upon him just now while he may still be found. So again, if you got it, if you've heard it, if you've understood this first aspect of this movement, you should be asking yourself the question, what in the world did I get myself into? What in the world did I sign up for? Or maybe it's in the words you would hear from the Spirit. The Spirit that says, wake up. It's time to wake up. Wake up from your sleeping. Your nap is over. There is a fullness of life that has yet, that you have yet to find. There is a dream that God has for you that is still out there for you to pursue. It's time to get out of that grave. It's time to wake up. Will you pray with me? Loving God, as we share these weeks together, as we, as we look at where we are rooted at the movement that gave rise to the, to the church that we love, we pray, Lord, that you would wake us up, that you would invite us to see, perhaps in our own life, that there is so much more, and that your power at work in us in the Spirit is so much more powerful than we have ever imagined before. Invite us, Lord, to a passionate pursuit of a life that is holy and pleasing to you, not one that is halfway. Not a life that would speak of being almost there, but a life that includes both a holiness of heart and a holiness that is expressed and our love for one another. Spirit at work in us, wake us up. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.